The scripture reading for today comes from Luke 19, verses 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two, two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. We have a new response this week. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are taking a break from our Acts sermon series for a couple weeks in order to have some time set aside for Holy Week. And today is the beginning of Holy Week. As I've mentioned, it's Palm Sunday, the day that we remember Jesus journeying into Jerusalem on a colt. And it's a journey that would eventually take him to the cross, to his crucifixion, which we'll walk through on Good Friday. But that isn't the end of his journey. Ultimately, where this week ends is not with death but with resurrection, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But today, to begin, it's Palm Sunday, and so we're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, but not just his triumphal entry. As you likely noticed, our sermon text went beyond just his entry into Jerusalem. It also covered his weeping over Jerusalem and his cleansing of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. And normally, the triumphal entry reminds us of one of Christ's offices, the office of a king. Jesus is a king, but he's not only 
a king as he begins this final week. He is also a prophet, and he is also a priest. Those are the offices of Christ, and they're going to be our sermon points for today. Jesus is a king, Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is a priest. And so let's begin with our first point. Jesus is a king. Have any of you ever watched the show Sports Center, or have you ever seen the Sports Center commercials? Well, if you're unfamiliar, Sports Center is a show on ESPN that shows sports highlights, and they have these great commercials, uh, which often make it seem like professional athletes have office jobs alongside the reporters and anchors of ESPN and Sports Center. And there's one commercial where LeBron James walks into the office, and uh, as I'm sure you all know, LeBron James' nickname is King James, and he's the king. And so King James, you know, walks into the office at Sports Center. He goes to his cubicle, sits down in his chair, and it's just a regular office chair. You know, it spins in a circle. You can raise and lower it. And uh, LeBron's trying to get comfortable. He leans back a little bit. He lowers it a little bit. And it's clear that something is off about his chair. And so he gets, gets up, and he walks over to the cubicle next to him, and he says, Hey, Scott, uh, did you possibly switch chairs with me? And, of course, the chair that Scott is sitting in isn't an office chair at all. It's a throne. And it's nearly as tall as LeBron is himself. It's got red upholstery. It's got a wooden frame that's painted gold. It says King James in the back of it. Hey, Scott, did you possibly switch chairs with me? Scott leans his head around the corner of his throne, and he says, No, not me. LeBron asks, Are you you sure? Yeah, good, good luck finding your chair, LeBron. LeBron is the king, but Scott is not recognizing him as king. In fact, he's essentially recognizing himself as king. In the first section of our passage today, it's clear that the triumphal entry is meant to demonstrate to everyone who the true king is, who deserves to sit on the throne, who deserves the blessing and honor and praise, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the king. And Jesus clearly sets up this whole situation in order to demonstrate that he is the king. He is the one who sent the disciples into the village to find the colt, and it's not just any colt, it's a colt that no one has ever sat upon a holy cult, a cult that's been set apart for just a moment such as this. And then he says, you know, if someone asks why you're untying it, say that the Lord needs it. And so they go and find a cult, and someone asks, why are you untying it? And they say that the Lord needs it exactly like Jesus said would happen. Again, confirming that Jesus is in total control of what's happening right now. And then Jesus gets on the colt and begins to ride into Jerusalem, which again is making it super clear that he is the king, because this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Uh, It's a prophecy found in Zechariah 9, 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey." on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a prophecy of how the messianic king will enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey, and it's exactly what Jesus does. He knows that any good Jew would know that passage about the king entering on a colt, and he intentionally sets up the scenario where he enters Jerusalem riding on a colt. He's telling everyone, I am the king. 
And how do the people respond to him? They treat him like a king. They agree with him. He is the king. The disciples put their cloaks on the donkey for Jesus so that he doesn't have to come into contact with the animal. He rides along the path, and people are putting their cloaks on the road so that even the animal he's riding on doesn't have to come in contact with the ground. He's being treated as a king. The, the whole multitude begins to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they've seen. They say, "'Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord.'" Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king. They acknowledge Jesus as king. They treat him like a king ought to be treated. Blessing and honor and glory for Jesus. But the Pharisees in the passage, they actually have a different response. You know, there are Pharisees in the crowd, religious leaders, and they do not like what is happening at all. Uh, the Pharisees from the crowd, they, they pull Jesus aside or something. They, they speak to Jesus and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Which is pretty strong language, right? Rebuke your disciples. You know, the Pharisees see all these people treating Jesus as king and they, they disagree with them and they tell Jesus he needs to rebuke them for what they're doing. Why do the Pharisees want Jesus to rebuke the crowd? his disciples. Well, it's because the disciples and the crowd are treating him like he's the messianic king. And if, if he's not the messianic king, as the Pharisees believe, then his disciples are blaspheming. And how could Jesus let his disciples and the crowd persist in blasphemy? Well, it's because they're not blaspheming. Jesus is the messianic king. Jesus is God. And so he deserves what he's receiving. He deserves to ride on a holy colt. He deserves to walk on cloaks. He deserves the blessing and honor and glory. And so how does he respond to the Pharisees? Verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Even if these people don't give me blessing and honor and glory, rocks would start doing it. If not a single soul would treat Jesus as king, the very creation itself would bow down before him. That's how sure Jesus's kingship is. It doesn't depend on any of us. We're not picking or choosing or electing a king. He already is the king. We can either acknowledge it or not, but whatever we do won't change the reality one bit. You know, back in uh, January, when the you know, Omicron cases were spiking, uh, there was a Sunday during that time where I think maybe 10 people were able to make it to the worship service. And, you know, I knew ahead of time that that was probably going to be the case. And it's sort of weird preparing, you know, the sermon and the liturgy of a worship service when you know that very few people are probably going to come, maybe even possibly no one. But this verse came to mind, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And look, I understand why people didn't show up during some of those Sundays. I'm not trying to say you should have, but that verse came to mind. It was a comfort to me because even if no one shows up to worship, Jesus is still going to be worshiped. Even if you don't show up, even if I don't show up, Jesus is going to be worshiped. He's going to get his worship one way or another, either from you or from rocks, but he's going to be praised. So the only question then is, Will we be one of the people who praises him? Will we be one of the multitude giving Jesus blessing and honor and glory or not? And so will you? 
Will you acknowledge Jesus is king? Will you praise him as king? Or will you let the rocks do it for you? You know, there was this kind of cheesy song we used to sing in church when I was growing up called Ain't No Rock. And the song started off by saying, ain't no rock going to sing in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to glorify his holy name. Ain't no rock going to sing in my place. But of course, you know, just singing or saying the right words isn't ultimately what Jesus is after. He says in Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, Jesus doesn't just want your words. He doesn't just want your singing. Jesus wants your hearts. He wants your heart to embrace him as king. If your heart embraces him as king, then the singing and praising and the right words will follow. But first things first, is Jesus king of your heart? Do his commandments rule your heart? Or do the commandments of men, the world, the culture, the society rule your heart? Have you submitted yourself to Jesus? Your will be done, Jesus. Or is it more like, your will be done, Jesus, just so long as it doesn't conflict with my will. Now, if you struggle with the idea of being submitted to a king, of bowing down before a king, I want you to see how Jesus is not like earthly kings. Do you see that? Do you see how Jesus is unlike any king on earth that you can think of? You see, Jesus is a good king. He is a king of a good kingdom, a kingdom of peace and truth and love. He's a king who cares for his people, not one who domineers his people, not one who dominates others. He's a king who defends his people. He defends his people from sin. He defends them from death. He's actually conquered sin and death on behalf of his people. Sin and death, our greatest enemies, he's conquered for us. And you see how Jesus is a good king. He's the best king you could possibly have. Is that king worth praising? Is that king worth bowing before? Is Jesus king of your heart? He deserves to be. He wants to be. And you, have, you need him to be the king of your heart. No other king will do. But of course, you know, many people now and then reject Jesus as king. They reject him just like people have always rejected uh, God's prophets that he sent all this time. And that's, that's actually the other office that Jesus fills. And that takes us to our second point. Jesus is a prophet. You know, I had a, a Greek professor in seminary who, before big exams like the midterm or the final, uh, he would always send an email out to the class with a subject line that said something like midterm prophecy or final exam prophecy. And, you know, inside that email, I would have a study guide for the exams. You know, this is what you need to know for the exam. This is what I predict will be on the final exam. Which initially seemed a little bit kind of tongue-in-cheek, because calling it a prophecy made it seem like he was predicting the future, even though he was the one who wrote the exam. And so he knew for sure what would be on it. But actually, it was a little bit more like prophecy than you might initially think, because prophecy isn't really about predicting the future. Prophecies are God's promises to his people about the future. 
you know, the prophet isn't guessing. He's not making a prediction. He's actually delivering a definitive message from God. And really, that vision of the future isn't the point. It's not really the best way to think of the role of a prophet. It involved much more than that. You know, discussing the future is really in service of a much more important, overarching task of the people, or of the prophet. You see, the prophet's main job in the Bible was to call the covenant community back to faithfully obeying the God who had redeemed them by his mighty deeds on their behalf. And so, Describing a future judgment or describing a future salvation were actually ways that the prophet was trying to motivate the people of God presently to turn back to God now. Turn away from your wickedness and back to God because otherwise judgment will come. Or turn to God now because he has purpose to do good to you in the future. So turn back to him now. But it's always about turning back to God, which means that often— a prophet's ministry really ramped up the further away from covenant faithfulness that the people were, which, as you can imagine, made the life of prophets often quite unpleasant. Because what would happen is, you know, the prophets would witness the waywardness or the complacency or the reckless lifestyles or the bad habits or the impure worship or the debauchery, the injustice, the wickedness of the people of Israel. Prophets would witness these things, and they would be devastated and horrified, and they would seek God, and then God would send them back to the people to deliver a very unpopular message. And that made the prophets very unpopular. I mean, who wants to be the lone person who speaks up and says, hey guys, maybe we should stop doing the things that break the covenant with God, right? Like, when you're with your friends and a conversation kind of turns gossipy or crude or inappropriate, do you want to be the one to speak up? Do you want to be the one who says, hey, we should stop this? This isn't right. Probably not, because it makes you unpopular. Of course, if if you actually do find yourself speaking up in those situations, then you actually have a bit of a prophetic spiritual gift, because most people don't want to have to say those things. But that ability to speak against the current that everyone is flowing in, when that current is based in disobedience against the Lord, is prophetic. That's a prophetic gift to be able to do that. The prophet's job is to speak up in those moments. That's what a prophet does, and it makes them unpopular, and Jesus was no exception. In the very next chapter in Luke, Luke 20, Jesus tells a parable called the parable of the wicked tenants. Luke writes this, Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When the chief priests and the scribes and the elders heard this, they said, Surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So what's the point of this parable? What's the point of this interaction with the religious leaders? The point is that Jesus has been treated just like every other prophet before him. They beat the prophets. They treated them shamefully. They wounded them. And Jesus has now come as more than a servant to God, as the son of God, the prophet of prophets. And we can trace this buildup to Jesus as the prophet of prophets all the way back from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And then Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. And in Deuteronomy 34.10, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Then we fast forward to Jesus' day, and in Luke 9, we have the transfiguration, where Jesus transfigures in front of Peter, James, and John on top of a mountain, and God's voice comes down from heaven and says, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's my prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. He's my son. He's the chosen one. Listen to him. And how does Jesus get treated? Will they beat him? like the other prophets? Will they treat him shamefully like the other prophets? Will they wound him like the other prophets? Yes, and worse. They will kill him. And because of that, judgment will come to Jerusalem. In the parable, Jesus says that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants. And the religious leaders are shocked. They say, surely not, But Jesus quotes Psalm 118 and says that he is the stone that was rejected, but then became the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone, everyone who stumbles over Jesus, is going to be judged. They're going to be broken into pieces, he says. And if the cornerstone falls upon anyone, which is a reference to Christ's second coming, then they will be crushed. They will be judged. Judgment is coming for those who reject Christ as God's final prophet. We actually already know in the short term, as Jesus predicted, that Jerusalem was judged. Within 40 years of Jesus's crucifixion, Rome besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the entire city, including the temple. That's a historical event. It happened. And it was actually foretold in our passage in Luke 19, Verses 43 through 44, Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because God sent his son, the Messiah, the true king of Israel, because God sent Jesus to visit you and you did not recognize him as God's son because you treated him like every prophet before, because you killed him, judgment is coming. And in the short term, that was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. In the long term, it's the final judgment at Christ's second coming, his second visitation. But I want you, I want you to notice something. Notice the tenderness of Jesus, even as he communicates this judgment. Verses 41 through 42. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, this is a very similar sentiment to what he expresses several chapters earlier in Luke, Luke 13. Jesus says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Do you see the tenderness? You know, normally, when we think of someone pronouncing judgment, we think of only anger and vengeance, maybe even hatred. But that's not how Jesus pronounces judgment. He pronounces judgment through tears. He weeps. He loves Jerusalem. He loves Israel. He wishes that they could see the truth. He wants to receive them. He wants to gather them under his wings like a mother hen. He's a prophet with tears in his eyes. Yes, he pronounces judgment, but even more than that, Jesus came to pronounce salvation. John three sixteen and 17 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't primarily come to judge and condemn. He came primarily to save. Jesus' ultimate prophetic work was revealing God's will for our salvation, promising a future of eternal life, of restoration, of redemption, of healing, promising to send a spirit to live within us. That's the main prophetic message of Jesus. There's a way to find salvation. There's a way to God. There's a future for you characterized by shalom if you would just believe me. Do you? Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know that Jesus weeps over you if you don't? He wants you to believe in him. His primary goal in ministry is not to condemn you or anyone. It's to make known the way of salvation. He doesn't want you to choose the path toward judgment and commendation. He'll let, he'll let you, but he doesn't want you to choose that path. He wants you to come to him, to salvation. So won't you come? Or if you do believe in Jesus, do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to him even when what he is saying is unpopular? Even if listening to him, doing what he says would make you unpopular with others or call you to something uncomfortable, are you, are you willing to be looked down upon by everyone you know for the sake of standing on the same side as Jesus? Do you listen to Jesus? You know, what is... Jesus's prophetic voice speaking into your life right now, this morning, in this service? What is Jesus calling out against in you? In what ways are you individually, or for all of us, corporately, in what ways failing to keep our covenant commitments to God? How are we failing to keep our covenant commitments to Christ's bride, the church, to one another? You know, the Holy Spirit dwells within you and unites you to Christ so you can hear his prophetic voice. What's coming to mind right now? What is your heart resting upon right now? What's, what's causing your heart pain right now? Maybe that is Christ's prophetic word to you, that you need to turn away from something and back to him. What is Christ's prophetic word speaking to you 
right now? How are you failing in your covenant commitments to God? Even for those of us who do believe in Jesus, who want to listen to him, it's, it's evident to us that there's a massive gap between us and him. We fail tremendously. He always keeps his covenant faithfulness toward us, and we fail to keep, his covenant fa- keep our covenant faithfulness to him all the time. There is a huge gap between us, between us and God, and we need something to bridge that gap. We need someone to bridge that gap. And that takes us to our final point, a priest. Jesus is a priest. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, there's a group of soldiers who have been given a mission to save Private Ryan. But first, they have to find him. And so this group of soldiers, they go searching for him throughout war-torn France, and they don't even know if he's still alive or if they're just risking their lives for nothing. And there's this scene where they come across a field hospital and a bunch of dog tags of soldiers who have died. And so they dump all the dog tags out on a table, and they're sorting through them, checking to see if Private Ryan's name is going to show up on one of them, because if it does, then they can be done with their mission. And so they're flipping through the dog tags. They're putting them into piles of checked already. They're reading the names out loud. It's, you know, it's actually really disrespectful, to be honest. They're almost hoping that they find out that he's dead, and they're making light of all the people who have died. And as they're doing this, a line of soldiers begins to walk past them through the field hospital. And they're clearly soldiers that have just been through some, something awful. They've had their mission fail terribly, and they're all sulking and in pain, and some of them wounded and One of the soldiers who's on the mission to find Private Ryan, the medic, he notices that line of soldiers, and they're all watching as they flip through the dog tags. And so the medic angrily storms over to the dog tags. He wipes them off the table and back into the bags that they got them, and he pushes the guys away, and he says, What are you doing? You know, these names are fellow soldiers and brothers in arms with the soldiers walking by. How could you be so callous? This is a field hospital. These guys need healing, not for you to pour salt in their wounds. What are you doing? Well, in our passage, Jesus takes on a very similar demeanor as that medic. You know, once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. In verses 45 and 46 say, When he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus goes to the temple and drives out those who sold. Uh, In Matthew's account, it actually says that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling pigeons. Uh, This is kind of a famous scene, the scene where Jesus gets really angry, so angry that he flips over tables. It's often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. But what was the big deal? Why did Jesus get so angry? Why did he flip over tables? Why did he call the temple a den of robbers? Well, to understand it, you kind of have to have um, a basic conception of what goes on at the temple and who was allowed where. And so you could sort of think of the temple as a few concentric circles. Um, You know, there were concentric circles where Uh, You had a holier state. You needed to be in a holier state to go into the innermost circle, as it will, as it were. 
So priests, you know, they can make it into the innermost part of the temple. You had to be a priest to make it in there. That's like as holy as you could be. But then there was another circle outside of that, and you could be there if you were an Israelite um, in that first outer court of the temple. But then the outermost circle, that was called the kind of court of the Gentiles. That's the, you know, the least holy status. It was the closest that anyone who was not a Jew could get. And it was in that outermost court the court of the Gentiles, that court is where the market was for selling animals and exchanging money. And it was essentially leaving nowhere for Gentiles to pray or worship. You know what I mean? Try, imagine trying to have your personal devotions or a worship service at like the checkout line at Target, right? Nothing could get done there. And so Jesus sees that and he's not happy at all. You know, the temple, Jerusalem, the whole nation of Israel was supposed to bring the nations to the true God. They weren't supposed to use their nation or their city or their temple as ways to keep people away from the true God. And what's more, Jesus says that they've turned the temple into a den of robbers. You know, he's essentially equating the temple with caves where thieves might store their ill-gotten wealth or plot future crimes which likely means that the, these markets did more than just sell animals for sacrifices, um, which in and of itself would be fine, but they likely gave unfair exchange rates for foreign currencies, or maybe they sold the animals at exorbitant amounts. And so they were exploiting people's desires to worship as an opportunity to turn a larger profit, which needless to say, God does not look very kindly upon And so that's why Jesus goes to the temple market, drives out everyone who's sold, and says that they've turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. And then in verse 47, it starts off by saying that Jesus was teaching daily at the temple from then on. And Matthew's account says that he began doing healings at the temple from then on. And what Jesus is essentially demonstrating uh, by all this, by teaching, by healing, by casting out the sellers, what Jesus is demonstrating is that he has authority over the temple. And authority over the temple is priestly authority. That's where the priests work. That's where the priests make their sacrifices. And Jesus is claiming now to have priestly authority, which you guessed it, the religious leaders do not like. In verse 47, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. We're seeking to destroy him. But little did they know, that even their seeking to destroy Jesus played right into his priestly authority because his destruction was the very priestly task that he intended to carry out. It was the ultimate priestly task. See, the sacrifices normally offered at the temple, they fell vastly short of the sacrifice that Jesus would be offering. The normal sacrifices did not satisfy divine justice. They didn't atone for sins. They didn't reconcile people with God. They were more like placeholders. They needed to be offered repeatedly. The the priests and high priests who offered them actually needed to make additional sacrifices for their own sin because they were sinners. And so these all fell vastly short of the sacrifice that Jesus would be offering. The sacrifice that Jesus would be offering, the priestly task he would take on, was to offer up himself as a sacrifice, a blemish-free lamb, a sacrifice that truly could satisfy divine justice, that could atone for sins, that could reconcile people back to God. And it only needed to be offered once. Jesus offered himself up once and for all. No more sacrifices needed to be made after that. Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all. 
because Jesus was a perfect priest. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. He had no sin. There was nothing he needed to do. First, on his own behalf, he was able to offer himself fully and completely for us. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. The gap exposed by Jesus's prophetic word is closed by Jesus's priestly sacrifice. And that's what Holy Week centers on. Jesus offering himself up as a sacrifice to cover our sin. This week is the center of our faith. Our king, our prophet, our priest, making his way to the cross to die for our sins. And then, because the debt has been paid in full, resurrecting from the dead. A sign and a promise that we, too, will resurrect one day. That's what this week is all about. Holy Week. Holy, as you know, means set apart. This is a week that is set apart. It's marked as holy. And I know, you know, most likely your world, the circles you run in, it doesn't organize itself or center itself around this week. You still have work, probably. You still have school, probably. You still have all your other commitments, practice, meetings, everything else. Businesses are open. It's business as usual. And so it's easy to forget that this week is special. But don't forget. Don't forget to set it apart. I know you have to go on living your life. You have to make ends meet. But find ways to set aside this week. Mark it as holy. Even though everyone around you maybe isn't setting it apart, we are. Christians are. This is the week that Jesus began his journey to the cross. If this week didn't happen, then we're still in our sins. If Jesus didn't go to the cross, we're still condemned in God's sight, condemned to hell for all of eternity. But this week did happen. Jesus did make that journey to the cross. And so this week we're reenacting parts of it, so to speak. We're going to walk with Jesus this week. I encourage you to make it back here Friday night for our Good Friday service, if you can, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. That's probably the service of Holy Week that's the most disruptive to your normal routines and schedules, but that's what it means to set apart a week as holy. You disrupt your normal routines, right? Holy Week. Then, of course, week from today, Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, we'll worship, we'll have an Easter egg hunt, and we'll feast together because our Savior, Jesus, our King, our Prophet, our Priest, is paving the way from death to resurrection, and we're going to follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you. All glory and honor and blessing belongs to you because you're a steadfast, ever-loving God. You keep your covenant commitments even when we don't. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son. Help us, Lord, to listen to him even when it's hard to listen to him. We thank you, Lord, that he was a sacrifice offered once and for all, that nothing more needs to be done, that we can be in in him, and therefore saved to eternal life. We pray this all in your name, Father. Amen.